0: Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Welcome to the latest CAL podcast with me, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Llewellyn Usher. Today's guest is Admiral Bill McRaven, a former Navy SEAL who commanded at every level during an illustrious career in the US Navy. Having graduated from the University of Texas at Austin, he joined the Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps before passing the basic underwater demolition course and joining the Navy SEALs in 1978. Admiral McRaven then served in operations with several SEAL teams, including during Gulf War of 1991. He commanded SEAL Team 3 and the Naval Special Warfare Group 1, responsible for all SEALs on the west coast of America. From 2006 to 2008, he was commander of Special Operations Command Europe, and then served as the ninth commander of the United States Special Operations Command from 2011 to 2014, in which time he oversaw Operation Neptune Spear, the successful mission mounted against Osama bin Laden. Admiral McRaven's time on the staff was spent with a focus on interagency coordination and counterterrorism operations. Retiring from the Navy in 2014, he was the Chancellor of the University of Texas System from 2015 to 2018. He's the author of four books, one of which was derived from his master's thesis titled The Theory of Special Operations. So Admiral, welcome to the British Army Leadership Podcast. It's wonderful to, to have you as our guest and very kind of you to join us from, from Texas. Yeah, it's great to be here thanks brilliant so um if i may start obviously the the purpose of the podcast is understanding you know leadership and trying to uh, trying to see where people have learned or indeed can learn and perhaps if we start and i ask you what does leadership mean to you
1: yeah you know i think in the simplest sense you know leadership is getting a job done with the people and the resources you have But at the same time, making sure that you maintain or increase the reputation of the integrity of your organization. And sometimes that last part gets lost in translation because people are so set on getting the job done that they forget how important integrity and the honor and this, this kind of sense of nobility of your organization is. So, you know, we see it happen in the United States all the time that, you know, somebody is striving to win a national championship and they... In a particular sport, and as a result of that, though, they cut corners and they do bad things, or they're out to win, uh, you know, Olympic gold, or they're out to build a business, but they forget that in trying to accomplish the mission, you cannot, uh, in underway, undermine the reputation of the institution. Mm-hmm. And by the reputation, I mean the honorable reputation of the institution. So I think that's leadership in the, in the simplest form, at least in my mind having the people and the resources, getting the job done while you're maintaining the reputation of the institution.
0: And and do you think that leaders specifically, so the individual, do you think a leader is born or made?
1: Yeah, so here's what I'd offer is, uh, having watched this for uh, for decades, uh, you can obviously train people to be good leaders. I mean, you do it, we do it all the time in the military. You take young men and women, uh, you know, kind of off the farm or out of the city and you give them some leadership training, you give them some responsibility, you explain good order and discipline to them, you hold them accountable, you teach them the basics of leadership and they can be good leaders. But I would offer that the great leaders are born, that you see it in the great men and women, the great leaders that are men and women, they have this you know, something baked into their DNA, this emotional quotient that allows them to, to sense the room, to understand how to motivate people, how to inspire people, and, uh, and that's not something I think you can teach someone. The great leaders have a connection with the men and women that work for them that is, uh, again, just sometimes that's not something you can put up on a whiteboard and teach people. I think the great leaders are born, which you can absolutely, you know, train and educate and teach and make people good leaders.
0: Yeah, say so develop the science behind who we are and how we how we improve. Yeah. So so when you, you, you've had an incredibly stellar career within the United States Navy and, and obviously specifically the the SEAL teams, but if we go back to maybe an earlier time before you joined the Navy, how much of an influence were your, were your parents on you that, that set you up? You talk about it often in, in, in public, but also in your book uh, and especially your, your father, how much of an influence were they?
1: Yeah, well, I, I was very fortunate to have two great parents uh, and they were, as we say in the United States, they were part of this kind of greatest generation. Uh, you know, my father was born uh, essentially right about World War I time. His father had been in the military, had been an army doctor. Uh, and of course, they go through the Great Depression, all the men go off to World War II, and when they came back to the United States, uh, you know, they, they really kind of built uh, the modern uh, United States that we, we see today. So this was a, a remarkable generation. Um, but my parent, my mother was a, a school teacher from East Texas. And I would say, even though they were from different parts of the country, they had the same kind of values, the core values that, you know, we hope today that our parents or guardians or teachers or coaches teach us. And, uh, you know, my parents were very, very big into working hard. I mean, my mom made sure I never had a spare moment during summertime. I worked hard. She expected me to always be honest and upright. My dad made sure that I treated everyone with respect uh, and this was at a time, again, in the 60s here, you know, in the United States, uh, we were going through a lot of racial turmoil. And I will tell you, my father, having been raised in the military and raised a, a little bit in the North, uh, he made sure I understood that, you know, you never measured a person by the color of their skin or their gender or their ethnicity, uh, that, you know, you, you measured people by, uh, you know, how well, you know, they were as people. And, uh, and he, he made sure I understood that at a young age. And so when I came into the military, I I like to think I brought those qualities that my parents taught me with me. And of course, my father was a a World War II fighter pilot, uh, flew with the 309th Fighter Pursuit Group uh, out of the 8th Air Force in the UK. He always, uh, in fact, he flew British Spitfires because when the the Americans got over to the UK, we didn't have a plane that could take on the Messerschmitt. Uh, So the Brits loaned the the Americans uh, the Spit and uh, they painted the stars and bars on them. And dad flew that for two years uh, in combat, crossing the channel, and then down in North Africa and Sicily and Salerno. Uh, he had a very, very soft spot in his heart for the UK and, the, and, and
0: uh, in his time in England. He sounds like, obviously, like, like, like all our fathers, are fundamental parts of our, our upbringing, but a, so, man of, a man of honor, but also a man of great integrity. You talk about an interesting period in your early childhood where you, know, you only ever lied to your father once. Yeah. And I wonder whether you can, you know, perhaps explain that situation, but also more importantly, how did that shape you as you then went on and upwards and onwards? And, um, you know, perhaps became a father yourself, certainly as a serving officer.
1: Yeah, so I was about 11 years old and we were living on base housing outside Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. And this was 1966, 1967. And uh, and outside the base was a very large, huge uh, ammunition storage depot and when i mean huge there were uh, you know miles of what we referred to as gravel girdies which were the the tops of the ammunition storage depots and during the war they had actually uh, had some uh, nuclear weapons stored there during the vietnam war they used this as a storage so it was a massive area and uh, as as a young boy uh, you know this was in the age of james bond and i was a big uh, spy fan and and so we decided, me and a couple of my buddies decided that we would scale over the three fences. There were three very uh, strong barbed wire fences that uh, protected the Ammunition Storage Depot. So to make a long story short, uh, you know, we came up with this, uh, this mission and, and we made our way down through the, uh, the dry gully that was uh, parallel the fence. We got to the fence and uh, my buddies decided that, <laughs> that they weren't going to scale the fence with me. But as we were scaling, we all had, we all brought our little kind of toy weapons with us. Uh, one of my buddies had a Red Ryder uh, BB gun, uh, which was the only real weapon that fired anything. I had a Roy Rogers pearl handled pistol. But anyway, as uh, as we get to the the uh, t- the fence line, my other buddies kind of chicken out. They decide this is a really bad idea. I should have figured it was a bad idea, but I scale over the first fence. And as I'm getting over the second fence, all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. Uh, alarms are going off. you know vehicles are moving. I can hear the sound of dogs, and now i'm I'm trying to make my way back over the first fence. Well, in making my way back over the first fence, I drop my my gun falls out of my my toy holster. Well we get back down into the dry gully and we kind of you know commando crawl our way back uh, back to safety, as you will. and And that was on a Saturday, and I heard you know we didn't hear anything about it after that sirens died down. Well, nothing happens. We go back home that night and uh, don't hear anything. Sunday comes, nothing. Well, Monday, my father comes home from work and he was the number three guy. He was an an Air Force colonel at the time. He was the operations officer for all of Lackland Air Force Base. And he comes home that night and he calls me into the living room and he says, "Um, Bill, uh, I got a report today that uh, a couple of kids tried to break into the ammunition storage depot. And he paused for a second, and of course now I'm sweating. And he says, well, do you know anything about that? And as I said in the book, it's the first and last time I ever lied to my father. And I said, uh, no, sir. And he said, okay, okay. Didn't say anything. And so it was about time for me to go to bed. So I go in, I, I take my shower, you know, I go and I, I hop in my bed and there on my nightstand is my Roy Rogers pearl handle pistol. So my dad had, uh, had known all along that it was me. And, uh, and never once in the ensuing you know, 60 years or so before he died did he ever mention that. And it hovered over me for, for decades. But I, but I think the, t- to your point, uh, kind of the moral of the story here was, uh, if you lie sooner or later, you're going to get caught. Yeah. Uh, and, and I realized that at that point in time, it was a bit of an epiphany for me. You know, I thought I had kind of gotten away. I thought everything was clear. It's never clear. You know, if you lie, if you're dishonorable, if you cheat, sooner or later you're going to get caught. Uh, I'm glad I learned that lesson at an
0: early age. We all learn little lessons, don't we, through through childhood and all the way through. You, you talk about in that story, just to maybe expand that a little bit. You talk about one of the one of the boys. I think it was that John was. You talk about him being the follower, you know, and right. and that all good all good teams need a follower or what's right. that effect? What is the importance of followership and leadership in your time in the, in the military? You know,
1: I would offer, you know, followership, you know, maybe as important as leadership. And because all of us, you know, that are part of an organization, you're all following somebody. And I don't care whether you're a four-star admiral, you're going to follow somebody. In this case, you know, the president of the United States or the secretary of defense or the chairman, everybody has somebody they have to follow. And in the organizations that work, uh, you know, I tell the young officers and the senior enlisted that are there, you need to be a good follower. You need to make sure um, that, you know, when the commanding officer, uh, you know, has a conversation or gives you a direction, if you don't agree with it, you know, take the opportunity to kind of voice your concerns in a professional manner. But you can't go back to the team room and roll your eyes and tell everybody how screwed up this guy is. Uh, You know, that that's not good followership and that doesn't create uh, the the teamwork that you need to create within any organization. So being a good and again, being a good follower doesn't mean, you know, saluting smartly every time and saying aye aye sir and three bags full. Being a good follower in fact does mean challenging some of the assertions. It does mean making sure your voice is heard, I think. But when the final decision is made, then you do have to salute smartly and move out certainly within the military context. And, and when that decision is finally made after the pros and cons of the options have been weighed, then that's when you really need to say, okay, uh, let's all get on board. Let's, uh, let's support the leader. And that followership is you know, kind of seems to be getting you know, more and more challenging to find in organizations. People feel like they have the opportunity to snipe at the commander or the leader uh, throughout, the, throughout the entire uh, course of, of an event. And I would say, look, you know, you handle this professionally. You make your concerns known, but once everything is weighed and the decisions are made, you have to kind of support the decision as though it were your own. Mm-hmm. And um, and if you do that, then frankly, you find the organizations do well. The other thing I used to tell junior officers, because frankly, it happened with me, you know, junior officers tend to get this sense of uh, you know righteousness. I said, look, you're going to find, and when I was in the SEAL teams early on. We had a lot of these old guys, old meaning they were probably in their 40s, uh, but they were Vietnam vets. And, and you know, by that time, you know, maybe they'd put on a little weight. Maybe they'd lost a little hair. Maybe their wife wasn't as good looking as she was 20 years ago. And, you know, as junior officers, yeah, we'd get off the side and we'd kind of make fun of their, you know, the fact that they were a little paunchy and maybe their wife wasn't as good looking as she could have been and maybe they were losing their hair. and So I've always counseled junior officers, be careful about being overly righteous. You someday will be in that position, and you will find that uh, those men or those women that were leading you, one, they're not as stupid as you thought they were. Uh, they have a lot of other pressures that are that are driving their decisions, so be careful about having this kind of junior officer attitude about the boss. The, and, and when I was always coming into command, I always made the assumption that the guy before me was not an idiot. And, and this is an important piece, too, because it's easy when you come in and you go, well, Obviously, this guy couldn't get the job done, or couldn't get it done as well as the, you know, as clearly I'm going to get it done. And then what you find out is when you get in there is like, ah, I see why he had problems with that. I see why he didn't do that. I, you know, so never make the mistake of thinking the person before you was not as smart as you are, because they may be
0: as smart or smarter. Which in in my case, they were always smarter than I was. You're actually right. You know, be be humble about uh, what right. what and who you're taking over. I think is important. Yeah. you, you yeah. talked about. If you're not humble, you're going to pay the price. I guarantee you. Absolutely. Um, you talked about challenge culture, and you know, it's really interesting. We're we we're, we're starting to to discuss that more and more. Do you, do you think that the the structure of the the sealed teams and sort of uh, elite teams allow that to happen? Perhaps more so than maybe mainstream navy or conventional militaries, because of that very hierarchical structure within those. Because you're dealing with a very much broader spectrum of age, people, and experience. Whereas in the teams, very specific, very often mature people who are able to offer an opinion but accept a decision and move move on as a team, rather than then have that fracture you talk about.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I can tell you in my time in the SEAL teams, and particularly as I watched it with other, you know, special operations forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I particularly like the Army Rangers. And, you know, so in, in the Army Rangers, you had, you know, a young captain or a major was leading a particular operation, and some of the young Rangers, I mean, these are 18, 19-year-old mm-hmm. kids that are, you know, privates, but, but the approach that they would take is, say, you know, we're going to go on a mission, but when the mission's over, we'll come back and do an after-action review, and we take off the collar devices, rank is no longer an issue. And everybody that wants to say, hey, this was screwed up, we could have done this better. It really becomes, you know, an opportunity to say that because you realize people's lives are on the line. Mm-hmm. And, and when people's lives are on the line, you don't want to be uh, timid about expressing your concerns about why a particular part of the plan didn't go well, or how somebody could have done something better. And, th- and then again, when, they, when it's over, then everybody gets back, particularly the Rangers get back to, you know, Sir Rangers lead the way. And, and kind of get back into that, that mindset. But, but the same thing happens in the SEAL teams and, and all the elite teams that I've been in is there is absolutely a culture of you know, challenging the decisions and the plan early. Again, until somebody makes a decision, okay, we're moving out, then you have to kind of align with the plan. But if things don't go well on the mission, you come back, you do the after action review and you really dissect the mission, again, in a professional way, uh, so that you get to all the weak points, so you, you can correct them before you go out again. I think the problem in the conventional forces is, and, and you raised it, one, the the breadth and the depth of the level of rank is is broader and thinner. So you've got a lot more junior enlisted, a lot more junior officers, and frankly, just the scale. If you take an army company of you know, 130 guys, it it becomes a little challenging to bring them all in and have this sort of uh, you know, orchestrated melee. But in the smaller units, it's it's easier to do. And I think again, it breeds a uh, a culture of, hey, I'm not afraid to challenge the boss if I think the consequences of a bad decision are gonna to lead to somebody getting hurt or killed.
0: When you were, when you look back at your time in your in SEAL training in PUDS, were you aware then of the or were you very overly conscious of the mystique of the SEALs? You talked about sort of the, the older, the older members of the team and you know their their experiences as vietnam vets when really the seals kind of started to flourish Were, were you aware of their sole purpose was actually to try and pass you rather than fail you and the methods by which they were doing it was actually just to see what was what was the core person inside that they could then rely and trust that person when when in combat
1: yeah so you know when i went to seal training in 1977 i knew nothing about the seals there were there were no movies no books hard to believe No movies, no books, no nothing on it. No documentaries. There was one article from Vietnam called Men with Green Faces. And it was printed in a a men's magazine back in the day in the late 60s and early 70s. They had these men's magazines were really like, they weren't like Playboy and things. They were action sort of stories. And so this article was in there. It was the only one I could find. I must've read it 10 times before going to SEAL training. But it didn't talk about SEAL training. It talked about kind of the SEALs in Vietnam. I knew nothing about what I was going into in SEAL training. I assumed they were going to try to kill me. And were times so when I thought that was, but you know what, uh, you know, you're young and you said, bring it on. I'm ready for the challenge. You're not going to kill me. Uh, you're going to have to kill me to make me quit. Mm-hmm. Unlike today, the, the young men coming in today, they know every day of SEAL training because they've seen the documentaries, they've read the books. Back then we didn't know. Now I had great respect for the, uh, the enlisted guys and the officers that were, training us because they were Vietnam vets. But to your point, it wasn't until probably, oh, maybe 12 years later or so, when I was the executive officer at SEAL Team One, so I was the number two guy, and the commanding officer of the SEAL training said, I'd like you to come over and kind of observe SEAL training. I thought, well, yeah, I've been through SEAL training. Why Why would I want to observe it? But now I got to observe it from the instructor side. And to your point, There were times when I was going through training that I thought the instructors were trying to kill us. Um, And in fact, they were trying to evaluate us in a way that that would give them a sense of whether or not we were mentally and physically tough enough. But I remember one incident in particular, as I was observing, one of the things they do is they put you out in the cold water and they keep you there until guys are shivering, shaking and quitting. But at one point in time, as I'm I'm standing on the beach, it's nighttime, the, the water's cold out in California, and there's one kid who clearly is having problems, and the instructor pulls him out. Now the instructor starts yelling at him, having him drop down, do push-ups, do jumping jacks, you know. And of course, the kid thinks he's being harassed by the instructor. What he didn't know is the corpsman, the medic, was watching to make sure the kid could, in fact, do the things to realize that he wasn't going into hypothermia. But you don't know that when you're going through the training, right? And you realize that everything that we were put under, to your point, Henry, was you know, they were trying to get us to the point where they could, in fact, evaluate us to determine whether or not we were going to be good seals,
0: not just to break us. Do you think that that I mean, that's a really good point. You don't know. You know, part, you know part of uh, some selection processes is about, you know, the psychological sure. ability to not know what's coming next. But do you think the the, the plethora of books and TV reality shows is maybe the mystery? defied it so much that people kind of expect to know what's coming next or actually does yeah. it and therefore does it does it perhaps dilute the people that are coming in i don't think it dilutes the people
1: uh, i mean we've taken a hard look at this uh, as we have tried to measure it's uh, kind of success rates over the years and no matter what we have done and we've been doing this for a long time we have tried to figure out how do we get more people through seal training uh do, do we front load it and do, do we do pre-training longer Do we bring them in, uh, you know, in the colleges? Do we work with them in in, uh, basic training for the young sailors? Nothing has fundamentally changed the attrition rate, uh, which is about 75% for the enlisted guys and about 50% for the officers. No matter what we do, the margins of that barely move. I -hmm. think part of this is, yes, they can know what's gonna happen every single day by, again, reading the books and looking at the documentaries, which of course I didn't know, but they still have to pass the runs and the swims and the pull-ups and the push-ups, and they have to go through the pain. And so I don't think it is diluted. In fact, if anything, I'll tell you that the quality of the guys coming out of training today, I think, are higher than what I went through. They're smarter. They're stronger. Part of it is that they they understand nutrition better. They kind of understand what they're getting into. And frankly, we kind of up the bar in terms of the number of guys coming in. When I went to SEAL training, if you could pass the test, the basic... Uh, a screening test. You were going to get in. Nowadays, uh, you know, only the very, very top guys get in uh, on both the officer and the enlisted side.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: I'm not sure I would have gotten in the SEAL training back then, uh, but but today it, the the bar is so high; it's very challenging for me.
0: I think you're being very modest. Sir. You famously talk about your the commencement speech that you famously gave, and then the, the success of the follow-on book. Uh, But but specifically the commencement speech, which has obviously gained thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of hits um, about that opening gambit of make your bed. And I think that's that's so true, even though my children completely ignore that. But do you remember living by that that rule or that practice when you were a junior officer? Or is that just something you realized as you came through your career?
1: I don't know that I understood it. As a junior officer again, I, on the commencement address, I talked about having the chance to talk to the instructor mm. who kind of put why do we make our bed. I mean, I came to SEAL training to be a battle hardened Navy SEAL, and every morning we're waking up and getting our bed inspected, and I didn't quite understand that until he kind of put it in perspective and, and context. I think, like every military guy, I mean, uh, and in the Navy, the Navy's really big on this because when you're on a submarine, you know, you just can't afford, you know, when you're when you're stacked on top of each other to have your your rack your navy bed you know not be made you can't afford not to wipe down the sink i mean you know there is such discipline on a ship because it's such a small confined space um so i I do think the navy culture obviously inculcated into the seals was part and parcel to why we felt this was so important because when you go on a ship or a submarine or of course shore duty or anywhere else making your bed is an important part of you know, the, the good order and discipline that, that they expect out of their sailors in the Navy and the cleanliness of the spaces, which is critical on a on a small Navy ship. But yeah, I mean, just as a matter of routine, I made it all the time. But I also tell when I got to Afghanistan and, and you know, later on, I'm a three star in Afghanistan. And I lived in what was referred to as a bee hut uh, made by the Navy Seabees. There was nothing but a plywood room. There was nothing in it, as you probably remember. I mean, I had a bed in it. And, uh, and the, you know, the, the head, the latrine was outside. There were no shelves, just a bed. And I'm a, I mean, I'm a three-star admiral. You know, it's, you'd think it, you'd be living in some nice place. Ah, I lived in a, in a plywood, and I was perfectly comfortable in that plywood room. But you also knew that every morning you got up, I went to the gym did my work. I came back, made the bed. Because when I left that plywood room and you go into the combat zone or whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq, A lot of chaotic things happen, you know, you lose soldiers in combat, civilians are inadvertently killed, some general, some admiral, some president is yelling at you about something outside the room, uh, you know, could be challenging. And of course your days are long, you know, our days are normally about 20 hours long and sometimes you win multiple days before getting back. But when I got back to the room and I opened the door, I mean, the bed was made and there was something about my ability to control at least my little bed. my room that was important to me uh, in combat. And I've, I've found certainly during COVID, uh, you know, it, it is a little bit of sense of control of your life, something as silly as making your bed.
0: No, it's true. Having a bit of structure and a bit of routine yeah. as well helps you start the day and finish the day in good order. So when you go through your career and then you, you take command, you very openly talk about, in having command effectively taken away from you or being moved, how did that experience impact on you? And how did you motivate yourself to then immediately pick up and run with the next command that was given to you?
1: Yeah, well, so uh, to your point, so when I was a young Lieutenant, uh, about 26 years old, uh, I was assigned to an elite East Coast SEAL team, we'll leave it at that. Uh, And after about a year there, I got fired. Yeah, it's never good to get fired. It's never good to get fired in the Navy, and it's really bad to get fired in the SEAL teams because everybody knows you and everybody knows you've been fired. And I remember the day I was uh, kind of relieved of my command, you know, guys would come up to me and they'd kind of pat you on the back and they'd say, Hey, Bill, don't worry about it. It'll all be okay. You know, you're a good officer, et cetera, et cetera. But I knew what they were thinking. I mean, they were thinking, are you good enough to lead me in combat? Are you good enough to be one of my officers? I went home that night and uh, and I thought, you know, I, I think my career is over. You know, when you're, when you are relieved of a command position, it was a, a squadron as we call them today. When you, when you're relieved of your squadron, that's not a good thing. And I, I went home and I sat down with my wife and I said, look, uh, I'm not sure where we go from here. And, you know, she, uh, marrying a, marrying a good woman is a, a good start, but she looked me in the eye and she said, look, you've never quit at anything in your life. Don't start now. And, uh, and that advice kind of helped me through the tough times, you know, and it is tough. You, uh, mm-hmm. fortunately I had a, a senior officer that uh, still had a lot of faith and confidence in me. As soon as I was fired from one SEAL team, I got picked up at another SEAL team. I immediately, he gave me a SEAL platoon. I immediately went on deployment. Uh, That deployment went well and I never looked back. And, uh, you know, and part of this is all of you, you know, who have been, you know, in the Special Operations Forces, uh, who have frankly been in any part of the service uh, in the Army anywhere, I mean, you know, you're gonna have tough days. And, And the reason, people have signed up to do this job is because they're tough uh, because they want to be successful because you know they're not quitters. And I don't care whether it's special forces or whether it's uh, infantry or artillery or armor. Uh, people come in because they want to be the best and, and they're not quitters. I, I figured, look, uh, you know, I may not have a career, but I'll be damned. The last thing I'm going to do is quit. And if I end up being a terminal lieutenant because I was fired, so be it, but I'm not quitting. And that kind of drove me for quite a while. I mean, that was an important part of uh, I think who I was and, uh, and what gave me the inspiration to kind of keep, keep moving. And
0: yeah. then after a
1: while it just, you know, uh, success built upon success. And I, I guess I didn't never look back after
0: that. Do you think that that sort of don't quit mentality and we're talking about outside of the military, perhaps now is society is definitely changing. But in in the traditional values in the military of sort of stoicism, and especially some units, the the mystique that surrounds them, do you think that that there should be greater focus on that? Or do you think we need to focus on being comfortable with perhaps failing or what a success that you wanted to have and and persevering? Or do you think there's that ability now that's starting to be eroded?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's starting to be eroded. I mean, I've actually got great faith and confidence in the younger generation. I've told folks before, i I'm the biggest fan of the millennials and the Gen Z that you'll ever meet. And people are always surprised by that, because at least in the United States, you know, this characterization of the millennials as these kind of pampered, uh, entitled little snowflakes, then I'm always saying, well, I'm quick to point out that you've never seen them in a firefight in Afghanistan, uh, or you've never seen them going to school at the University of Texas trying to make a better life for themselves. I don't have concerns about the youth of America being too soft. And I can't speak to the UK, but, but I, I will speak to the, the you know, the Americans I've worked with about, but of course, you know, some of the great SAS troopers I've spent time with, you know, the same generation, the same sort of cut from that cloth. I don't worry about the, the resilience. Now, everybody's going to fail. You know, that's just, that's just part of life. You're going to have to learn to, do, to deal with failure. And I, I think the good leaders understand that, look, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. But as a good leader, you can't be afraid to make the next tough decision because the last one didn't go well. You've got to learn from the last one. But the men and women that work for you, if you're their leader, they expect you to make the next tough decision. They expect you to continue to lead them. If you become you know, too timid to lead because you've stumbled before, you're probably not the right person to lead. So yes, you're gonna fail. Yes, you need to learn from the failure. But I think the quitting piece is, it's not separate and distinct. You know, the fact of the matter is when times get really tough, you just can't quit. Uh, you know that that's not what the men and women expected. yet. I remember mm-hmm. one point in time, I had a uh, a retired chief of naval operations who had come to the Naval Postgraduate School when I was a a navy commander and I was a student there. At this point in time in his life, he was kind of a a little bit heavy set, uh, elderly guy, and uh, but he had been through a very tumultuous time in the navy, in the U.S. Navy, when we had had tail hook and we had had all sorts of bad things happening. And so I was having lunch with him. And and at one point in time, this kind of question came up, and he he kind of looked at me a little quizzically and he said, Look, I was in charge. He said, uh, When bad things happen, you can't just quit. Your job as a leader is to fix the problems, not to run away from them. The men and women that work for you expect you to fix the problems. And yes, they may blame you for them and maybe rightfully so. But at the end of the day, leaders fix problems, they don't run from them. And I think that's the that's a little bit of the, the no quit mentality as well.
0: You're talking about sort of degrees of responsibility, you know, owning good or, good or bad, and then writing perhaps bad if it hasn't worked the way you wanted it to work. Sometimes it doesn't. Talking about winning, I think it's a really interesting area to look at because we, we always talk about going out to win or, you know, succeeding, and you you rightly touched on learning from failure. We, we recently interviewed uh, a lady, dr kath bishop who is a british olympic rower but also a diplomat and she's she's written a book recently and she talks about this societal obsession almost with winning can, can you perhaps give a perspective on the dichotomy between winning at all costs but then taking away something that then perhaps if you haven't won whatever winning might be benefiting the greater good so you succeed and improve as you go forward
1: wow that's tough one. um yeah i think all of us is uh as military men and women, we want to win. Uh, I think we have to kind of define to some degree, you know, what winning is. And kind of back to the very first question you had. You know, part of this is I see some people that will win at all costs, as you said. And as I mentioned, when you asked me what's my definition of leadership, uh, yeah, you know, it's getting the mission accomplished with the men and women and the resources you have. But that second part is crucial. That second part about maintaining the honor and the integrity of the institution. And so if winning at all costs means undermining the values of the institution, then you're not the right leader. Uh, If winning at all costs means cutting corners, if winning at all costs means not holding people accountable because they happen to be great at what they do uh, because they're helping you win, but they're undermining the foundations of the institution, then winning at all costs is not a good thing. But if winning means getting the mission accomplished, uh, and maintaining the integrity and the honor of your unit uh, or your organization or your firm or whatever it happens to be, then I'm okay with winning and winning hard. But, but again, not, not at the expense of, uh, of undervaluing or devaluing the, the traits that are important for you.
0: You hit on a point there, which we're, we're looking at quite hard about, you know, our cultural makeup and our values and standards, which, which allow us to, to be the organization that we want to be. Uh, and your bit about, you know, we, we talk about the standard you accept, the standard you walk past as a standard you accept. So don't detract from the little things just because you're trying to, to seek to win because actually everything starts to unravel.
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, again, it, it is, you do have to understand uh, kind of what your foundational values are. Um, and if one of them, like I said, when you see a small problem, you, you can't pass it by. Again, you're, you're a leader. You've got to address it. And, and, and a leader didn't just didn't mean the, the unit commander. You know, we're all leaders. And I don't care whether you're leading one person or 20,000 people, you, know, you have an obligation to, to take care of the problems. That's what leaders do. And make the hard decision. Yeah. And again, I tell folks, look, at, you know, I'm often asked about the different leadership qualities when I was in the military and when I ran the University of Texas system. So for your audience, the University of Texas system, 230,000 students and 100,000 employees. So a pretty large organization. 14 different institutions so eight academic institutions and then six very large uh, healthcare institutions huge hospital systems and i was often asked when i was a chancellor uh, somebody would always uh, in the back and they they thought it was kind of a rhetorical question they would say well chancellor you know now that you're not in the military anymore you know how is it leading these uh, these eccentric faculty because when you were in the military you just told people what to do and they did it and now, you know, you're you're running the uh, institution of higher education, You got all these kind of eccentric faculty. And I would generally cut them off about mid sentence And I would say, well, look, if you think being in the military, you just told people what to do and they did it. You never spent a day in the military, because, as you know, you have to inspire, you have to motivate, you have to manage. And every once in a while, you got to kind of kick people in the fourth point of contact. Uh, but as a good leader, as a servant leader. I mean, your job is to empower the people below you to get the job done. You've got to give them the resources, the training. You've got to give them the latitude to do the job. You've got to let the reins loose a little bit, but then you have to hold them accountable when they fail to do the job. And let me tell you, that leadership will apply whether you're in the military or running a university system or running a large
0: corporation. And it goes back to a bit at the start when you said it's about it's inspiring people and, and making them realize that perhaps they can do things they don't believe or feel they can achieve
1: yeah let me one quick uh, seal training example we we've got a, a uh, an obstacle course as all military units do and, and one of these obstacles of course was a, a very high wall and you had to kind of jump up and you climb over the high wall and i remember at one point in time one of our one of the weaker guys in our class always struggled with this and and he'd get about three quarters away through the obstacle course and he'd come to this high wall. And you know we would all be cheering him on and everything. and It looked like he was never gonna clear the high wall. And I remember at one point in time, you know, one of the crusty old Vietnam vet instructors came up to him, got right in his ear, yelled at him, screamed at him, told him he, he was gonna be dropped if he didn't. And all of a sudden he just scampered up that, up that wall over it and he never had a problem with it again. So sometimes inspiring, I mean, we were on the side going, come on, come on. And then sometimes inspiring is getting on their ass and making sure they understand if they don't get this done, uh, there's gonna be a price to pay. And he, he scaled that wall. And he never had a problem with the wall again.
0: I'm sure there's a moral to that story. When you reflect back on your career, command appointments versus staff appointments, but there might be some correlation, but specifically command appointments, how did you manage as a commander who's giving a set of orders? How how did you manage your own fear uh, for the men on the mission that you've just directed, knowing what the consequences might be but without allowing them to see what your concerns were, were and therefore to retain confidence in your decision making.
1: Yeah, I was really fortunate. By the time 9-11 happens, uh, I've been in the military for 26 years. Uh, I've been a SEAL for 26 years. Uh, I make Admiral in 2003 and, uh, and soon thereafter head off to Iraq and then spent you know, most of the next 10 years, uh, six years in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan in particular. By the fact that I had spent 26 years before all of a sudden 9-11 happens, I mean, I'd seen a lot in my career. Uh, I had a, a really good understanding for what the guys could do and what they couldn't do. I understood the risks. I had the experience. Now, most of it was only training experience, you know, short of Desert Shield and Desert Storm, but it was still experience. Then all of a sudden I get to 9-11 and, um, and, and I, I realized what the guys were capable of doing. And I also realized that at times when you know, you're looking on the video, the Predator, the Reaper screen, and you're, you're seeing guys in a firefight, yeah, you're concerned about them, but you also know that you have trained them well and they will do the best they can and you're providing all the support you can. But, you know, was I concerned? Of course, you're always concerned anytime you send somebody out the door. Uh, one of the reasons I would go out on missions with the guys, you know, a couple times a month was to make sure that, one, I understood the the dangers and the hardships they were going through. I wanted them to see that, one, I was prepared to share those hardships with them, but it also made made me a better decision maker. Because when I'm sitting there in the plywood palace in Bagram, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm getting ready to tell guys to go on a particular mission, if I had been on a similar mission, I could visualize exactly what I'm asking them to do. I could visualize you know, how tired they were gonna be. I could feel it. I could smell it, uh, all those sorts of things because I had experienced it. And therefore, you know, when I looked at a concept of operation, it wasn't something that was uh, you know, just a, you know, a piece of paper with a couple of uh, bullet points on it. It was something I could feel and, and, and it was tangible to me because I had done it with them. And so I think the experience is really crucial to not being overly concerned. But you know, at the end of the day, the enemy gets a vote. And unfortunately, we lost a lot of guys in combat. Uh, you, you carry that burden with you for the rest of your life. You wish you could have done some things better. And you try to be satisfied with the fact that you did the best you could, and you hope that they would understand that.
0: Did you ever wrestle with that uh, sort of unconditional pact that we all sign up to, and the fact that you're uh, perhaps when you were becoming more senior, you know, you, you had been out and been on the ground as a younger officer, and and maybe on occasion went out as a more senior officer. The issue of being back in the in the in the rear, so to speak, not all the way back in the rear, but certainly in the command. In the command node, when you know that the teams are out on the ground, even though you know roughly what they're going to be through, how do you balance that kind of requirement to maintain that stoicism and and pursue the mission to the end when actually you know that the outcome might not be favorable?
1: Yeah, I think part of it is you have to understand your role in the mission. And so, uh, as I became more senior, you know, my role became less and less, uh, or I should say, a little bit more and more detached. But early on, as a one star, uh, I mean, I am, I'm essentially commanding the missions, uh, from the command center. Uh, and I did so a, a few times as a three-star when I came back as the commander, but everybody has a role to play. And I think they, of it like an American football team, I mean, somebody's got a coach, uh, somebody's got to be the head coach. Somebody's got to be the offensive line coach. Somebody's got to be the you know offensive coordinator. Somebody's got to be the quarterback, somebody. And so my understanding or, or my, uh, you know, the way I kind of contextualize it, and I think the guys did as well is, okay, you know, if you're the young Ranger, the young SEAL, your job is to break down the door and go in and get the bad guy, rescue the good guy, whatever it is. If you're the, uh, the uh, you know, the, the aviation component, your job is to be there to call in fires if needed. If you're the guy flying the F-18, you're dropping the bombs. You know, if you're the intel guy, you're giving the overall picture. If you're the admiral in charge, your job is to coordinate what's happening in the rear to make sure that, do we have the medevac ready? Uh, you know, are, are we? What are the Afghans doing? What are the Iraqis doing? Uh, let me take a look at the tactical and the operational situation. Am I making the right calls to the battle space owners? All of these sort of managerial sort of things, coordination things that have to take place in order for the guy on the ground to do his job. I was comfortable that my role, and you know, when you're 55 years old, uh, while it is enjoyable to get out with the guys, which I had always had a great time going out on missions, you know, it's not like I was really going to help them. But, uh, but I do think they appreciated me being out, uh, you know, and, and again, kind of sharing the hardships. But they also understood that my job was in a lot of ways to kind of manage up, to lead up to my bosses, the CENTCOM commander, General Petraeus, General Dempsey, whoever it happened to be, the ISAF commander, General McChrystal, General Petraeus, you know, so That was my role. I think they were comfortable in that role. And I was, you know, at that point in time in my life, I was comfortable doing it.
0: What advice would you give based on your extensive experience of of that situation and dealing with layers of command, but also an enabling function as opposed to leading from the front. But in this age of increasingly uh, uh, capable technological support that we can call on, what advice would you give to both the military, but, but perhaps in industry and, and commerce as well, about not dialing right down into the, what's happening at the front and actually just using the technology to enable what's happening rather than suddenly leaning in and actually taking control and command of the situation on the ground?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, to your point, uh, it would be very easy to kind of call down to the young captain on the ground and say, hey, no, go left, don't go right. Yeah. And of course, everybody in the command center understood that was not our role. Uh, now, I will tell you that there were one or two occasions when, as a three star, I did that because they weren't looking at the strategic, the, the bigger strategic picture. We have an occasion where we were taking some rounds from what we thought was a Pakistani Frontier Corps fortress. Uh, and the ground force commander was about to call in an AC-130 gunship to take out the whole Frontier Corps on the Pakistani side, which would have killed, you know, 30 or so Pakistanis uh, because he thought the fire was coming from there. Uh, I'm watching this from afar and, and listening to it, and I didn't think that was the case. I told him, move out of effective fire range. We're not going to l- unload on this Pakistani Frontier Corps. And of course, it turned out that it wasn't the Pakistani Frontier Corps, and, uh, and all the guys got out safely. But that's one of the few times where I injected myself into the middle of a, in this case, it was a, a SEAL and an Afghan unit. Um, the SEALs had a hard time. I had to, you know, let me tell you, the next day was very uncomfortable for a whole lot of us. Uh, they were not happy that the three-star admiral had, had jumped into the middle of this, but I felt it was important at the time to do that because there was a bigger picture. But that is one of thousands of times that I didn't, you know, I mean, that one time out of thousands of missions. But I think everybody in the Joint Operations Center understood that that's not our role. Our role is to enable the, you know, the captains and the soldiers on the ground to be able to do what we have trained them to do and what we have given them the resources to do, and, and, and they've got a mission to do. So our job is: to make sure the fires are ready, make sure the battle space owner is coordinated with, make sure the Afghans are in the right place, so that they can go do their job. Mm-hmm. And I rarely, if ever, saw you know somebody in the Joint Operations Center, you know, trying to take command or control of of an operation on the ground. I said I did it probably twice in six years in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and the other time was in Iraq, and it was a very similar situation where. Uh, The guys on the ground were going to engage what they thought was a hostile target and it turned out not to be. And I I jumped in and and prevented them from doing that. But those are few and far between and they need to be few and far between.
0: Beware the long screwdriver.
1: Yeah. But again, the good news is everybody I know is cognizant of that. You know, when you you look at the Bin Laden raid, it was very interesting because uh, when we were getting ready to do that, Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he told me, he said, hey, look, Bill, I'm going to, the president and his national security team they're going to stay in the situation room in the White House, and I'm just going to give them updates. I'm not going to allow them to kind of watch and see what you're doing, because, you know, I don't want them kind of jumping into the middle of this. I was never really concerned about that. Uh, but I said, OK, sir, that's fine. But a bit of a funny story, because the I had a liaison officer that was there in the White House in the room next to the situation room. And Admiral Mullen kept coming in to tell President Obama, well, you know, they've launched, well, they're halfway there. They're three. And finally, President Obama said uh, to Admiral Mullen, he said, Mike, where are you getting this information? <laughs> and is that guy talking to McRaven? Is he seeing what McRaven's seeing? And finally, Admiral Mullen had to admit that, yeah, he was. And oh, by the way, he was literally right next door. So if you've seen that iconic photo of them all kind of hovered around the one general officer, uh, Brad Webb, who was my deputy at the time, but never once was the president or Leon Panetta, at the CIA, never any intention on their part of telling me how to run the military piece of this. They they weren't going to do that. And I, and having worked with them hundreds of times, I knew that was going to be the case. I never had any concerns.
0: I was going to tactfully avoid talking about Neptune spear, but I would probably be lambasted by, by everybody who wants to know a little more about it. But I'm not going to go into the detail of the the mission itself. But w- what I would ask you is, given the complexity of it, and the strategic situation, how do you comprehend in your mind, the, the m- mission success? And h- had you considered how you would have had to manage the consequences if the mission had not succeeded?
1: You know, when I obviously mission success for me was, was getting a lot, but I'm often asked, well, d- did you think he was there? And I said, it absolutely made no difference to me whether I thought he was there or not. The intelligence was at best 50-50, but you built the plan assuming it was him, because if it was him, then you had the expectation that you know the grounds might be booby-trapped, he might be wearing a suicide vest, and you had to plan for all that. So you, you planned for the worst case scenario. Tactically, this was not a particularly difficult mission. It was a long helicopter flight, 162 miles, but the compound was, you know, a compound that the guys, like the guys had been raiding all the time. Clearly, strategically, it had a lot of challenges. Uh, you know, you're coming into a compound that was uh, in a built-up urban area. It was three miles from the Pakistani West Point, three miles from a major infantry battalion, a mile from a major police station. And by the way, the Pakistanis have nuclear weapons. Uh, so, the, you know, that that always concerned us. My biggest concern was whether or not bin Laden had... Uh, rigged the compound to blow up. You know, we saw it a lot in Iraq and Afghanistan, where the compound was wired, and uh, you know, when American forces showed up, they'd crank it off, and uh, a lot of our soldiers would get killed or injured. So that was my biggest concern. But uh, but yeah, we had a plan. You know, if things didn't go well, to, to, to President Obama's credit, uh, at one point in time, I I said, look, I've got a plan for this and this, but you know, I'm a little concerned if the Pakistani military shows up, you know, it's probably not going to go too well for them. And, uh, and he looked at me and he said, Bill, I want you to build a plan to fight your way out. And that was great guidance. Um, not something I wanted to do because, you know, these were, these were just Pakistani soldiers doing their job. And, you know, had something like this happened on American property, you know, we would have had, you know, American soldiers and police showing up and you really didn't want to engage these guys. But the president made it clear that, you know, if we got in a firefight and if uh, if life or limb were at risk, then we were to bring in whatever it was going to require to get our soldiers out. And I had a package ready to do that. I had looked at everything, helicopters going down, the worst case scenario. So we had a plan for dealing with every worst case scenario. But I will tell you up front, when we built the execution checklist, there were decisions that I had to make. And we planned it so that I wasn't going to have to make this decision in the heat of battle. You know, the the thing, the worst thing that can happen to you is all of a sudden, you know, you're three quarters away the way there and you lose a helicopter or the Pakistanis have done it. So now what do you do? Well, that's not when you want to be thinking about the problem. You better have already thought about the problem. You better have already essentially kind of made the decision. And so I had a decision matrix. If this happens, this is what I'm going to do. And again, in my mind and in the planning, we had, you know, if we lose a helicopter, this is what I'm going to do. If the Pakistanis find out about us, this is what I'm going to do. If we have a mass casualty, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, we didn't leave anything kind of unplanned for. And then for me, it was just a matter of saying, "Okay, this has happened. This is now my decision. I tell the guys to go do this."
0: So that's uh, yeah. We we talked about this in a in a previous podcast about for our audience that are non-military about you know the planning process that one goes through and the estimate and the contingency plans that you have in place to ensure that you don't, you don't meet a dead end when something right. unexpected happens. But in this, in the context of the mission, the, that specific mission, you know, elements of the teams are very humble about, you know, it was just another mission, um, perhaps varying degrees of complexity. What in your mind constituted success?
1: Well, so success was getting Bin Laden and getting all the guys back safely. I mean, it was the manpower and the resources you have to accomplish the mission and, you know, protect the reputation of the institution. So I wanted to make sure the guys got one to accomplish the mission. I want to make sure the guys got there and the resources got there. I was short one helicopter uh, coming back um, and that we, you know, we maintained the honor and the integrity of the institution. And By that, you know, we didn't want to inadvertently kill Pakistanis if we didn't need to. We We wanted to be appropriate and honorable on target. Uh, you know, we didn't want to kill any women and children. I mean, even if they presented problems for us now, we did have a, a woman jumped in front of one of the, one of the shooters, but this was important to me as well. The guys needed to comport themselves, uh, in a way that was going to be appropriate so that when this mission was over, people would say, you know what, uh, the seals did right by the country and by
0: the world. So do you think it would have been, I mean, how would you have had to contend goes back to that, that question of, of, you know, having to, to answer up to to the president of the United States and the team that was with him, but also to, to talk to the teams and their, their, um, their comrades, perhaps those that hadn't gone on the raid, if the objective had been achieved, but the team had not recovered. How, how did you contend with that?
1: In my mind, I realized that we had a, a high possibility of losing guys. But at, at the time, everybody that was going on this mission understood the risks. Uh, and I understood the risks. And, and I think every one of those guys uh, would have accepted the loss if it meant getting bin Laden. I mean, this was important, you know, to the United States. It was important to our allies. It was important to the world. They understood the risk going in. And I think this is uh, to their credit. Everybody stepped up and, uh, and assumed those risks and said, you know, if I don't come back and we get the, we get the bad guy, then
0: I think they were going to be OK with that. Fortunately, we got everybody back. We sometimes forget that we all have that unlimited liability that we sign up to, and right. you get a vote. You don't, you don't have to do it, I suppose. So, I'm very conscious of the time. If I, if I may perhaps ask um, one question, penultimate question, which, which does play into what you were talking about in the strategic context of not only the geography of the region, but also the, the nature of bin laden and the the, those non-state non-state actors that we've been having to contend with how would you explain and and how do we get into understanding how we operate within a rules-based system of finite outcomes when perhaps we're against adversaries whose ideological perspective is infinite
1: you know i think we have always had this problem i mean you go back and you look at you know, the Malaysian insurgency, you look at Vietnam, you look at a lot of the you know, positions we found ourselves in over the years. We, the Western world, have morals and values that we think are important. And we, we wanna make sure that we don't compromise those values uh, in the pursuit of the enemy. Because if you do that, you know if you're just as violent, if you're just as uh, irreverent, if you're just as disrespectful to the dead, if you're you know, just as heinous in, in your actions, then you're no better than the enemy. And so, uh, you know, a leader's responsibility is let's find out how to do the mission, how to do it the best we can. And, and again, maintain our sense of, of honor and integrity. That is challenging. Of course, it's like the rules of engagement uh, and the law of armed conflict. The reason those are there and in place is so that we don't find ourselves straying off the reservation and then regretting it later because maybe, maybe we get the bad guy And, you know, and at the end of the day, people don't respect us as a nation anymore because we were, you know, uh, we didn't follow the rules of engagement and we did bad things in combat and conflict. Now, you're always going to have people that do bad things Um, and, and you need to hold them accountable. You need to get them off the battlefield. You need to you need to make sure that that never becomes the standard of the organization. The standard of the organization should always be, you know, honor and integrity and the sense of duty and doing what is right. You will always have men and women that violate that standard, but never lower the standard just because that seems like the expeditious thing to do in order to win the fight. Uh, because you may win the fight and, and lose the war and, and lose the, again, the honor of your unit and you don't want that to happen.
0: It chimes with everything we're looking at in terms of our, our values and our standards and how we uphold them and, and ensure that we do maintain a, a values-based uh, system, which I think is, is, is imperative. Whether it's the lowest, common denominator, doing the basics well all the time, or whether it's the grand strategic problems, it's maintaining a a sense of purpose and perspective.
1: And it's hard. I mean, make no mistake about it. eh? You know, I I love to quote uh, Carl von Clausewitz, uh, you know, when he said that everything in war is easy. It's just the easy things are hard. I think it's the same thing with leadership. Everything in leadership is easy. You know, lead from the front, take care of your men and women, you know, be leaders of good character. It's just hard to do. Uh, And people that do it well, uh, are respected because they can figure out how to get the mission accomplished uh, with all of the kind of caveats that go on uh, around it. None of it's easy, uh, or, or everybody would
0: be a good leader, and they're just not. Our academic partners, certainly here at Sandhurst, and I suspect over in West Point, Annapolis, will be listening to this. Grateful that you've mentioned Clausewitz. We're loving you for that. Uh, so if I may, we, we always finish on a, um, a set of quickfire questions. So if I may just fire right. a few at you. Um, who, who's the best leader you've ever worked with and why? Yeah,
1: great question. And I've been asked this before. And and frankly, I can't, uh, I can't think of one person, but the guy that would stand out to me more than anybody else would be my command sergeant major, a guy named Chris Ferris. Uh, And Chris Ferris uh, was beside me uh, during my time as commander of JSOC, my time as the commander of SOCOM. And I leaned on my command sergeant major an awful lot Uh, to make sure that I was being the kind of leader that the men and the women expected me to be. And watching his leadership and his followership, which you asked about earlier, Chris may have been the greatest leader follower I've ever known. Mm -hmm. Because uh, he and I didn't agree on a lot of things. And we would close the door and he would, uh, you know, (laughs) sometimes we'd have a very tense, heated argument. But when he walked out that door, if I had made a decision, it was his decision. And he made sure... Uh, the men and women understood that, hey, this was the sergeant major's decision, just like it was the commanders. And and he would encourage and motivate. And uh, but, you know, leading doesn't always mean you're the the person at the top. Now, I would offer Chris was one of the best leaders I've spent time around. But frankly, I've been I've been blessed to be around great leaders my whole career. And, and we get better, uh, you know, by imitating those great leaders. And we also get better by watching the bad leaders. You know, I've had a few bad leaders and mm-hmm. you realize that those are not the people you want to be. And sometimes those lessons are equally valuable
0: to know what not to do. With great leaders in mind, who is your most inspirational leader from history and and why might that be?
1: Well, you know, uh, being an American, I'm a big fan of George Washington. And the more I read about George Washington, uh, you know, the more enamored I I am with him. But I will also offer about 50 of these books back here on Winston Churchill. So, uh, you know, maybe it's an American uh, affinity for Churchill. Uh, but between Washington and Churchill, I mean, I think about Washington, and you know he he comes from a bit of an aristocratic background and uh, and leaves America at the toughest time in our history, doesn't take the name King because he didn't want to be another king george. <laughs> and uh, and then steps down after after two tours or after two times as the president, uh, because he thinks it's important to have the change. I mean the sort of things he put in place, his leadership as a general. Uh, under the most difficult circumstances, his leadership as the president—he he obviously had slaves—and we have to put all this in context. But I think, as a, as a leader, as a general, and as a president, I, I look back to him as inspiration. Then again, Churchill, there isn't anything I didn't like about Churchill's leadership during the war.
0: I think there's a lot of, a lot of people who would agree with that. There's, there's probably quite a few who'd who would have a very intellectual debate about the, oh yeah, of the kind of le- the kind of leadership he he might have. Displayed, but uh, yeah, I think a lot of people would, would often chime with that. And of course, he had very close affinity with America through um, his, his family.
1: Yeah, man. We, uh, we weren't easy on him early on either. You know, I, I, yeah, he and Roosevelt, uh, you know, Roosevelt was a little slow coming to the rescue sort of thing. And, uh, you know, God bless uh, Churchill for kind of keeping the fires burning. So when you cast
0: your mind back at your uh, military career and, and perhaps the career that you've, you've had since you left the military, what's the most valuable leadership lesson you learned? personally?
1: You know, the most important thing I think for any leader is to earn the respect of the men and women that work for you. Um, and, and you earn the respect by working hard. You know, I don't think anything can, can compensate for hard work. You know, I was never the most talented officer around. I mean, I, I wasn't uh, the fastest. I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the smartest. I didn't have the best education. Uh, but what I tried to do to make up for that lack of talent was to work hard. You know, you show up early, you work hard during the day, you stay late, you listen to the experienced officers and senior enlisted, you learn from them, you be humble, uh, you try to be a servant leader. And, and by that, it, it means, you know, it isn't about you. If it ever becomes about you, if it's about your ego, it's about your promotion, it's about your credit, you're probably not the right leader for the job. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, when I think back on leadership, earning the respect of the men and women that work for you. Yeah, that, that, to me, is, uh, is the kind of leader I always wanted to be, and I, and I hope I achieved that to some degree in my, my time mm. in the military.
0: What's the one piece of advice you'd give a young Bill as he turned up at, at Bud's in 77?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because back in 1977, of course, we had no admirals. Nobody that joined the SEAL teams back then really had a career. Uh, you didn't join the SEALs to be a career Naval officer. I was just fortunate to kind of ride the wave. But as I look back uh, on my career, I would have said, stop worrying so much about things. You know, I I worried about a lot of things that really, I think in the big scheme of things were probably inconsequential. But the one thing I hope I did well was I tried to do the best job where I was. And I didn't look too far down the road. Again, uh, my concern sometimes as a young officers coming in today, they see the fact that, hey, they can be an admiral someday. Well, I, I never thought about that. I never, I was, I was hoping to be a Navy Lieutenant. And there were times that I wasn't sure I was gonna make that. Um, and I actually think that was healthy because all of the officers of my generation that became admirals, none of us came in thinking that we were gonna be admirals. I mean, Eric Olson, myself, Joe McGuire, Bert Callen, Bob Harward, uh, you know, none of us thought we were gonna be admirals. And we were all very close, we were all good friends. Uh, we all kind of hoped the other guy would be successful. And that was a great culture growing up. Um, but, but I remember just trying to do the best job I could where I was, and then hope that the next job would kind of move me forward. And I'd try to do a good job there. I never
0: looked too far down the road. Brilliant. Admiral, thank you. Thank you so much for giving out your time. I know, I know how busy you are and, and how in demand, but it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you. And, uh, thank you so much for uh, insights into areas of, of your Career and your leadership experience, I know that will be of huge benefit to, to many of us who, who listen to podcasts. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's uh, It's been a pleasure being with you today.
0: A genuine pleasure to speak to such an accomplished military leader, whose comments chimed with a great deal of our current thinking here at the Centre of Armour Leadership. We were struck by his views on winning, which mirror those of previous sporting guests, Kath Bishop and Kate Richardson-Walsh. But although vitally important to have a goal and to aim high, it remains imperative to maintain the organisation's integrity and allow individual goals to support the broader collective aim. This directly correlates with the Army Leadership Model, which is based on John Adair's action-centred leadership theory and highlights that a leader in any situation must continually balance the needs of the task, the team and the individual set against the context of a particular situation. As Admiral McRaven alluded to, there is always going to be a tension between the three and good leaders know how to skillfully manage this and navigate the team to successful conclusions. What was fascinating is that Admiral McRaven echoed many of our previous podcast guest views when he spoke about followership, highlighting that at every stage of his career, he was always a follower to someone above or indeed below him. As the Army Leadership Doctrine highlights, followership is not a lesser role. It is an intentional act and plays an essential individual and collective role in defining leadership successes. Followership and leadership are very much two sides of the same coin. Finally, and heavily linked to the leader-follower relationship, he spoke about the importance of a challenge culture, highlighting that although it's easier in small elite teams like the US Navy SEALs, it is essential in any organization that teammates have the freedom to challenge their leaders' thinking and buy into the development of the plan, but that all must ultimately get behind that plan to achieve success. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website and of course follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.